Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly, possibly, possibly think of, has a history, like beetroot, trotters, and blindness. Oh, trotters. That, <laughs> how, do we write, how do we write a history of trotters? I'm oh, it's sure we be could, great. I'm sure we could do that. Or mm, wings we should do as well, animal parts. Oh, trotters w- is good. Wings would, wings would be great. Have you seen that amazing sculpture? down in Topsham that has just been put up. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Joe Stevens, has just filmed it. And go to, go on to um, Instagram and have a look for Topsham Joe. But it's this amazing uh, life-size sculpture of a man painted white with wings going off into the, the hmm. estuary there. However, or prayers, layers and sayers, slayers, players... And fayers. <laughs> the last one was a, the last fayers. one. The last one was a bit of a stretch, but it works just fine if you say it in a, a broad Devonian accent, which of course I don't have. Uh, but I truly wish I did because there are some there are some wonderful phrases, wonderful terms of phrase uh, down in Devon, uh, like "where be two. And um, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of losers is all about the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression, the American dream and rugged individualism. It's about the concept of being unsuccessful. It's about credit ratings, statues, commemoration, Black Lives Matter, Confederates. It's about white supremacy, Arthur Miller's death of a salesman. It's also all about World War II, oral history, radical history, hidden voices and history from below. It is a a corker and we recorded it a couple of weeks ago. Or that the history of cars is all about mechanised warfare during World War II. And this was a very special chapter that we wrote in our little book, uh, Histories of the Unexpected World War II. You're probably wondering who's doing the speaking. Let me just say that the man not sitting opposite me, we are social distance. Let's just say that if history, <laughs> this is a good one. Uh, I'm if history, sure it is. Yes. If history itself was an 18th century scientist in need of companionship, and it was indeed not just any 19th century scientist in need of companionship, but a young Thomas Edison struggling with inventing nothing less than telecommunication and electric light, this man would be his Henry Ford. And... 
powerful friend of parallel genius who would encourage our brilliant young Edison to even greater historical achievements whilst helping him cope with the mishaps of history, war, racism, intolerance, disease and general historical misery. He is none other than the true friend of history itself. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. That's that's terrific, Sam. You must be spending such a long time on writing these. That was not an introduction. It was more like an essay. <laughs> it was brilliant. I'm, I'm, down to, I'm down to seven lines now. You're down to that's seven good. lines. Or well, up to seven lines. <laughs> With a man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say, if he were a historical friend, he'd be the Butch Cassidy to my Sundance Kid, the Chewbacca to my Han Solo, the Hugh Laurie to my Stephen Fry, the Thelma to my Louise, the Piglet to my Winnie the Pooh, and dare I say it, the Ant to my Deck. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer and my dear friend, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, we're continuing our. Uh, I've been thrown by the Ant and Deck. <laughs> I know. Do you know? Do you know who? Do you, do you know which is which? I truly don't. <laughs> I really don't. And I, do. I think I can identify. Them, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> That's they're, they're very good, but I, 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 I mean, it's my fault that I, I don't pay enough attention to names. No, but you see them as a, as a, as as a, a like Morecambe and Wise. You know, which, well, um, I, yeah, I, I couldn't identify those two. Uh, we are doing the history of friendship. You've probably worked that out. And we are continuing. Um, Such was the depth of our research and our interest in this topic. We're continuing over two episodes. So it's one of our longer histories of the unexpected um, missions of exploration. Um, And we're contrasting these with our micro histories. Um, Do please check those out. If you've just got a little 15 minutes and you want entertaining for 15 minutes while you're making some soup, check out one of our micro histories. Now, friendship. We did all sorts of stuff last time. Um, Talked a little bit about... Uh, the way you study friendship, how it how it survives, how you can um, find it in letters and books and um, uh, friendship albums I talked about as well, and also the things that you might do with friends. Um, today we're going to be talking about something, I, I think, you know, a bit more, uh, a bit different from that. Um, I particularly want to talk about friendship at the level of nations, international friendship and cooperation, which I think is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to start by talking about the um, the first Catholic Relief Act of 1778. I was inspired to do this um, because I wrote a, a big book about the American Revolution seemingly many years ago now, and James mentioned um, the American Revolution. You had an example from the American Revolution, didn't you, James, in episode one? Was that, was that Franklin? The it Franklin was Fra- it's Franklin's letter. You are yeah. now my enemy. <laughs> you are not my friend. Um, this is all about, I think, friendship, tolerance, appreciation of uh, different religions, uh, the first Catholic Relief Act of 1778. So it's at the, uh, early on in the American Revolutionary War, but war is certainly ongoing and it's been brewing for several years. And the British government realised they got a bit of a problem. And what they do, it's a self-imposed problem, which has been established by the popery laws. There are a series of penal laws against Roman Catholics in Ireland in particular around the 1700s. Um, And what they do is they make things very difficult indeed for Roman Catholics by establishing different inheritance rules for Roman Catholics compared to Protestants. In traditional Irish law, 
Um, they used something called gavelkind as an inheritance rule in which an estate would be divided equally among a dead man's sons. But in, in England, by contrast, you've got something different. You've got male primogeniture. So the main inheritance principle is that the eldest son receives the entire estate. Um, this is all messed around a bit by the penal laws against Roman Catholics. Um, and they passed the Gavelkind Act, Gavelkind, I don't know how to present that, Gavelkind Act. Um, and it enforces the traditional Irish law on Roman Catholics and the English law on Protestants. But if the eldest son of a Roman Catholic family converted to Protestantism, he would no longer have to share his father's estate with his siblings, but could instead keep it all for himself. So what happens is the implication of this is that the law re has the effect of reducing the size and influence of Roman Catholic landed estates. That's the sort of ulterior motive of the act. And this all changes in 1778 because of the threat of war posed by the War of American Independence. And British politicians begin to have a more conciliatory attitude towards Catholics. They're primarily afraid that Irish Catholics will support the Americans um, as, a, as a fellow colony with, with problems that they could identify with, but also that they might support the French, a Catholic nation, and the French support the Americans during the war. So they're very concerned that the, the, the Irish will rally to the assistance of the French in their fight against, against the British. So there's a, a strong sense of self-interest going on in here. But what the British government are doing are recognising the importance of, of having a, a better relationship than they have done hitherto with Irish Catholics. And what they do is they end up passing a Catholic relief bill. And what it does is it proposes allowing Catholics who've taken the oath um, to bequeath land holdings to their heirs and buy land. And it becomes um, known as the Catholic Relief Act. And it essentially grants Catholics more rights. I'll read a bit of this to you because it's, it's really important the way the way it's phrased. Whereas by an act made in this kingdom in the second year of her late majesty, Queen Anne, entitled an act to prevent the further growth of popery, and also by another act made in the eighth year of her said reign, for explaining and amending the said act, the Roman Catholics of Ireland are made subject to several disabilities and incapacities, therein particularly mentioned. And whereas for their uniform peaceful behaviour for a long series of years, it appears reasonable and expedient to relax the same, and it must tend not only to the cultivation and improvement of this kingdom, but to the prosperity and strength of all of his majesty's dominions that his subjects of all denominations should enjoy the blessings of our free constitution and should be bound to each other by mutual interest and mutual affection. There were other Catholic relief acts. This is 1778. There's another in 1782. And then again, there are more in the 1790s when Britain once again is under threat from the French Revolution. So my point is there's a very interesting history here of apparent friendship uh, shown towards uh, the Catholics from Protestant Britain. But if you actually look at the politics and the timing of these acts, there's something a bit more um, a bit more sinister, a bit more under the scenes, a bit more political going on. And I think it's a really important point to make. They're basically, they're making friends with the Catholics when society is under threat, um, when it feels threatened by... by uh, uh, revolutions going on in the world around them. And I think more broadly, it's a, it, it makes the general point that 
You can look at the history of reasons for friendship, James. And if you don't look at the history of those reasons, you might very well end up with the wrong end of the stick. Very wise words indeed, Sam. Very wise words. I love that. Very interesting. Um, I want to go in a completely different direction. Uh, this is partly inspired by my, my own experience as a father, uh, talking to my daughters on a daily basis about their, their friends. And one of the things that strikes me about them uh, is just how important their friendships are to them and the rich culture of friendships that has that has built up and and they are incredibly loyal to their to their friends um really loyal um there's a whole spate of birthdays at the moment and my my daughters are just sort of uh, are insisting on buying sort of lavish presents uh for all their friends and they're you know and um i think one of the things that they found most difficult during lockdown is actually being separated from their friends not being able to see them and so you talked in the last episode about the things that you do with your friends the kinds of activities and one of the things that they've done is they've started they've started facetiming each other on a regular basis so they'll often have you know an hour or so you know on facetime together and often playing things you know, so they'll often play Minecraft together. But this got me thinking about how do we reconstruct a, as historians, how do we reconstruct that child's view of friendship? And how do we uncover that kind of culture of friendship? And one of the things that I think is a, is a constant sort of theme or a, or a sort of reoccurring theme of these, of these podcasts there's a sort of little meta-narrative uh, that runs through it is about how we write the history of childhood uh, from a child's perspective. And um, what I'm going to be talking about now comes from a brilliant book that I've I've talked about in the past, um, and it's by Iona and Peter Opie, um, and it's The Law and Language of School Children. And there's a chapter in there on friendship. And one of the things that they do is... One of the sources that they have is they have gathered together 340 essays by school children of your primary school age and some sort of early uh, early teens um, uh, on the title of My Friends and Why I Like Them. And one of the things that's really striking about the, this chapter is the way in which friendships were gendered. So it's the way in which girls have a very different idea of what constitutes friends and why they like friends and their particular loyalties and what they do with them. It's very different from from boys who are very much sort of simpler. And then there's some very interesting material around around friendships with people of the opposite sex. Uh, so boyfriends and girlfriends. And what's really telling about this is the degree to which they are able to quote from these, that we have these children's voices there. Uh, and, and you know, it's just really touching some of the things. And it starts by looking at, you know, at what boys want in friends and boys describing their their friendships. And there's a, a boy age nine from, from Dulwich Hamlet. And he writes, my best friend is John Corbett. And the reason why I like him is that he is so nice to me and we both draw spaceships. And what's more, he plays with me nearly every time in the playground. Another thing, he got by me when some other boys were tormenting me. 
Another thing about John is that he is sensible and nice, spelt N-I-S-E. Whenever we are playing rocket ships, he never starts laughing when we get to an awkward point. So if you think about it here, it's it's actually a very sort of pragmatic uh, understanding of friendship. It's about somebody who he enjoys playing with, who always is always there for him and also has his back. You know, when other people are tormenting him, he sticks up for him, and there's sort of real loyalty there. And you know, and also he doesn't he doesn't laugh at him, so he doesn't make him feel, you know, feel awkward. And then it goes on to talk about the the different language that people that boys use to to talk about their friends, uh, my bud or buddy or chum, crony, mate, uh, my monkey, partner or pal. You know, all of these are sort of, you know, things that people that people talk about. And friend is also defined as somebody who is a member of one's gang. Now, in contrast to this very sort of practical understanding of friendship, girls' friendships are, you know, are, are actually much sweeter um, and are much more affectionate. And they're based around they're based around giving things. So they're based, as I was talking about with my um, with my daughters, they are they're based around giving people tangible things that are meaning. So they'll lend things to each other. They'll give birthday cards and presents. They'll share sweets, um, and that's an important part of bonding. My my girls, um, they take snacks into school every day, and they regularly take an enormous bag uh, of whatever they're taking uh, in order that they can share them with their friends. That actually the this this practice of actually giving a friend something is a way of sort of bonding the friendship. And we can see this in a, in a, a testimony and the essay of a little girl aged nine from Camberwell. And she writes, I have two friends called Carol and Brenda. I like Brenda because she is very funny and very small. I also like Carol because when she has any sweets, she always gives me some and she has lovely curly hair and she's very nice. Carol, Brenda and I nearly always go home together. Carol nearly always sends me a Christmas card and a birthday card, and she never forgets to send me a birthday present. Brenda has a nice face, and she has straight hair with a fringe. So it's it, what, what's touching here is how, is how they, they praise each other. So they're quite conscious of you know, what their friends look like, and whereas boys, I, I don't know whether you find this, but I find, uh, boys are often sort of ribbing each other or teasing each other or, you know, already you've got these codes of masculinity that that stops boys being too affectionate or positive about people that they constantly need to josh and needle and tease because otherwise it's not manly enough. Um, girls are actually bond through paying each other compliments and uh, another nine-year-old uh, from East Dulwich writes about her friend Dulcie that she has got lovely hair, and that's partly why I like her. Another girl from Nunhead, an 11-year-old, uh, writes, My friend Barbara has fair hair and is very pretty and wears a red skirt and a brown sweater, and she has brown eyes and red shoes and white socks. So actually that, you know, that's very very sort of telling of the kind of um the kind of intimate relationships that they have based on you know on what what girls look like another girl from Camberwell says 
I like Hazel because she is a nice girl who always wears school uniform if possible. She takes great care how she is dressed. Another girl from Nunhead, age 12. My best friend is Vera. She always dresses nicely and walks with her shoulders back. Sometimes she wears brown slip-on shoes, a green cardigan and a dress. She wears white ankle socks. So at at no point do, in any of these 340 essays um, did any of the boys think about describing the you know what their friends were wearing or their physical appearance. You know, it's much more sort of, you know, manly stuff and they they refer to their friends as sporty or a good sport or um you know um a chum or as their old pal uh, and one 10 year old uh writes i like david because he is a good sport and kind to animals at games he never cheats and he sits out if he is out so in other words it it what it, it's not about his physical appearance it's actually about his moral character so the fact that he's trustworthy, he's a good sport, you can rely on him. That's that sort of fidelity in relationships seems to be really interesting. Um, one of the other things that the chapter talks about is the way in which children are constantly making and breaking friends. That there is a sort of degree of fickleness that children are, you know, one minute they're they're complete friends and the next minute they're not friends and then they're back into being friends again. And you can see this with you can see this with young children that they have these deeply intense uh, friendships, and they will you know there are you know exchanges of of gifts or necklaces. They'll play together. They'll invite people around for play dates. They'll have you know they'll do things together. They'll have passwords and secret signs. Um, but then sometimes they will you know just immediately fall out. So you'll be really pally with somebody for a couple of days and then fall out and go and find somebody else and then be back with somebody else. Um, so one one nine-year-old uh, writes, nine-year-old girl writes, um, I like Jean, um, she writes, because if we break friends, it's only for a day or two. And another, another boy writes, um, another nine-year-old boy writes, Brian and I don't like each other now as he bosses me about and I boss him. But we will be friends again soon, I hope. And then there's this practice of, you know, once you once you break friends, it's at the, the ceremony of making up that, of course, as you know, is connected to the little pinky finger. Um, you know, and then what you do when you make up, you you link your little fingers and you shake them up and down and you chant, make friends, make friends, never, never break friends. Um, and uh, that also is followed by, or if you do, you'll catch the flu and that will be the end of you, uh, which I love. And I, 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 I use all the time when I, when I make, when I, when I fall out with people, which is very, very rare. Um, so there are lots of sort of variations. There are lots of variations of this. There's one that is related to when, when people quarrel. Um, which is exactly the opposite, and it's break friends, break friends, never, never make friends. So um, this also has sort of cultural differences around the country. And in Glasgow, um, when kids shake hands, there's a, a third person who's involved who comes along and brings his hand down between the two parties that are shaking hands, saying, cut the cheese or cut cheese, which basically means that they're going to be um, 
they're going to be friends. Um, so there we are. Um, some sort of culture of childhood friendships uh, in the 1940s and 1950s from the OC collection. Absolutely brilliant. I, lo- I love that very much indeed. It's actually... Um... It leads on to what I was going to talk about almost seamlessly in the Super. 1940s, 1950s. So, but I'm going to talk about again something friendship at the level of states. So this it's like the op- the exact opposite of of eight year old kids talking about friendship. Or maybe it's not. Maybe deep down it's quite similar. I want to talk about the Yalta Conference of February 1945 when the Allied leaders meet in Yalta in the Ukraine to plan what's going to happen to Europe after the end of the Second World War. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Key thing here is you've got, you've got Churchill, you've got FDR, you've got Roosevelt, the American president, and you've got Stalin. And they're all... They all come together and they are trying to decide what is going to happen to Europe um, with the the sort of ghost of Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels watching on to see if these three can actually work together. A very famous series of photographs of the conference um, of uh, Churchill, uh, Roosevelt and Stalin sitting on chairs in, in, in a quite a, a beautiful and quite elaborate internal courtyard. And the whole thing is just crackling with tension. It's a fantastic photograph. Churchill sitting with his shoulders hunched. He's hanging onto his hat with his cigar. FDR is leaning as far away from Stalin as he possibly can get. He looks very unwell. It was, he was ill. He doesn't last as president much longer. And Truman takes over. And uh, Stalin is... It's almost like he's squatting. Um, he's hes perched on the very, very, very edge of his seat. Um, almost as if he's being forced to sit there by invisible hands. I don't think there's a, there is another photograph ever taken of three men more uncomfortable in each other's presence than these three. Um, and yet, the way that it was reported in the press was all to do with um, 
glowing confidence. They did actually agree on, on all sorts of wonderful things. They, uh, Stalin agreed to, to enter the war against Japan once the Germans had surrendered. Uh, they agreed that Germ- Germany would be divided into four zones, American, French, British and Soviet uh, as as the Allied soldiers, you've got to bear in mind that the time this is happening, they're marching through Germany, discovering the horrors of what's been going on in the concentration camps. And one of the key things the Big Three does uh, is they agree to hunt down and to punish the war criminals responsible for genocide. Uh, they they agree that countries liberated from occupation should be allowed to hold free elections. They uh, they all agree to join the new United Nations organisation. If you want to know more about that, listen to our homeschooling podcast on the United Nations. Um, there, there is a significant area of disagreement about what's going to happen with Poland. Uh, very briefly, Stalin wants it to become Russian and everyone else is a bit concerned about that. But they realise there's nothing they can do about it because Poland is completely full of Russian troops. So uh, Roosevelt and Churchill are a little more relaxed about that. But what's interesting is the, the the sort of reality of actually what's going on in these people's minds and the way it is reported uh, this is uh, Roosevelt writes a report and he says, we argued freely and frankly across the table, but at the end, on every point, unanimous agreement was reached. We know, of course, that it was Hitler's hope and the German warlords hope that we would not agree that some slight crack might appear in the solid wall of allied unity. But Hitler has failed. Never before have the major allies been more closely united, not only in their war aims, but also in their peace. Now, you get a little glimpse of what's going on in each other's minds as well um, as later in life or removed from the conference. Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt all do talk about and admit the way that they think. There's a great one here from Stalin talking to a fellow communist, Milovan Gilas, in 1945. Perhaps I haven't got a good Russian accent, unfortunately. Perhaps you think that just because we are the allies of the English, we have forgotten who they are and who Churchill is. There's nothing they like better than to trick their allies. During the First World War, they constantly tricked the Russians and the French. And Churchill? Churchill is the kind of man who will pick your pocket for a kopeck. Uh, bear in mind, a kopeck here is a, it's a very low-value Soviet coin, so he's saying that Churchill will pick your pocket almost for the sake of picking your pocket. And Roosevelt, Roosevelt's not like that. He dips in his band only for bigger coins, but Churchill, he will do it for a kopeck. So there's a bit of the truth behind this um, vision of friendship, and it all kind of crumbles as well. If you look at the official correspondence written in the aftermath of the Yalta Conference, uh, this is when um, FDR has is no longer president. President Truman has taken charge. May uh, 1945, Churchill writes to Truman about what's happened at Yalta and what he actually thinks the real problems are. And it is such a powerful, powerful letter. And it makes you realise that all of these, these, these visions of friendship um, and the images taken and all the descriptions are um, are very, very fragile indeed. Churchill writes, I'm profoundly concerned about the European situation. I learned that half the American Air Force in Europe has already begun to move to the Pacific Theatre. The newspapers are full of the great movements of the American armies out of Europe. Our armies are also, under previous arrangements, likely to undergo a marked reduction. The Canadian army will certainly leave. The French are weak and difficult to deal with. Anyone can see that in a very short space of time, our armed power on the continent will have vanished, except 
except for moderate forces to hold down Germany. Meanwhile, what is it about Russia? I have always worked for friendship with Russia, writes Churchill. But like you, I feel deep anxiety because of their misinterpretation of the Yalta decisions, their attitude towards Poland, their overwhelming influence in the Balkans, except in Greece, the difficulties they make out of Vienna, the combination of Russian power and the territories under their control or occupied, coupled with the communist technique in so many other countries, and above all their power to maintain very large armies in the field for a long time. What will the position be in a year or two when the British and American armies have melted and the French has not yet been formed on any major scale, when we may have a handful of divisions, mostly French, and when Russia may choose to keep two or three hundred on active service. And he goes on arguing that now is the time to come to an understanding with Russia and promoting uh, an idea of a personal meeting to come up with it. But he is utterly obsessed with it. He concludes, to sum up, this issue of a settlement with Russia before our strength has gone seems to me to dwarf all others. So when it comes to international friendship, beware of the images you see, beware of the reports and um, always try and maintain a, a, a cynical and healthy view of a historian. Be very suspicious. That sounds, again, very good advice, Sam. Excellent. Well, that talk about um, a sort of, um, I suppose, military history and, and, and politics and diplomacy um, brings me to my final uh, example, which is about the PALS battalions in, first, in the First World War. And this was something that I remember... Uh, from, oh gosh, years ago, over 30 years ago, when I learned about the First World War um, as a sort of 14, 15 year old. And I remember being quite struck by the PALS battalions because these were, you know, these were the first sort of battalions that were formed after the declaration of war. And what they are is basically groups of friends and communities who join up together. If you think about what's what's happened um, World War One has sort of had started after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on the twenty eighth of June, nineteen fourteen, um, and then war is declared against Germany on the fourth of August. But basically, the British aren't particularly well prepared already. And if you look at the standing army, so these are the these are the troops that are actually the professional army. You've got four hundred and fifty thousand men. You've got nine hundred trained officers and maybe quarter of a million reservists. And politically, uh, conscription, you know, would have been a hard sell at this point. But however, Kitchener, um, you know, knows that. Basically, this is going to be a a protracted war where you are going to need uh, a, a lot of troops, and you know he he famously sort of thought that the war would be decided by the last million men that Britain could throw into the battle. So one of the things that they do in order to get people to join up is start talking about you know, joining up with friends and joining up with family and, and, and community. And you'd, people would be much more likely to want to go to war if they did so with people that they knew. So you have a look at all the sort of poster campaigns at the time. And it is about it's about comradeship and, and, and utilising those local ties 
that people have so that they serve alongside people they work with and people you know and friends and people work colleagues and on the 21st of august 1914 we see the first formation of pals battalions and it starts among stockbrokers in the city of london and within a matter of days you've got over 1500 uh troops uh who men who join up and then it you find that it's in big northern cities where you know tens of thousands of men are volunteering you know places like newcastle like edinburgh like glasgow um like birmingham even bristol cambridge cardiff all of these places so all of these men go off and they are they're trained up and then they arrive on the on the western front the problem is that they are met with absolute carnage and you know we all know the history of uh the first world war and you know the you know the basically it was an absolute slaughterhouse men went over the top and were just mown down by german guns and the problem is when you see this um the when you see that the impact that this has on local communities you can see the decimation of whole areas if you have a look at the the casualties of some of these pals battalions they are astonishing so out of 720 pals from the accrington pals who participated in you know some of the first first battles um 484 were killed so you've basically got almost the majority of them were killed or were wounded or missing in action uh if you look at the leeds pals battalion uh 900 participants and 750 of them were killed and this is this is an enormous not only in terms of what that does militarily to those battalions they're just annihilated but also think about the losses that there are on the communities back home you know there are families that lose you know every male member of the family um you know you think about the impact of you know 750 out of 900 people being killed and that is you know a the all the young men in a neighborhood just killed in one day and you know i think what we see after conscription is introduced we see that there is never again an attempt to try and recruit from communities because otherwise you know it is a real sort of it it's a it's a really difficult problem to to deal with um and there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of material culture uh, that survives from this the the um the imperial war museum has a lovely uh, online exhibition here of various um various sort of artifacts material artifacts that survive including some of the posters so if you have a if you go to that if you google pals battalions and imperial war museum uh there's a poster from the tyneside irish battalion 
calling for Irishmen to arms to join today. So there is actually a an active recruitment of people from local communities. Uh, and there are photographs that survive as evidence of people in local areas, you know, all joining up and volunteering themselves. There's a lovely photograph here of the Preston Pals uh, from uh, photographed uh, in the Market Square in Preston on the 7th of September 1914. Uh, there's another one of the of the Leeds Pals at their training camp in the Yorkshire Dales again in September 1914. Um, or the, another one of the Bradford Bradford Pals. We also have the insignia, the badges uh, that were put on the uniforms of various sort of pals battalions. So we're looking at the sort of the way in which the the medals of these battalions survives, and so we get this sense of of comradeship that is that is there. Um, but one of the things that I found deeply deeply touching, as always, is some of the poetry that came out of the of the First World War, and this is something that is always there's always sort of stayed with me ever since again as I as I learnt it at school and I first came across Wilfred Owen's Dulce at Decorum Est. I found something deeply harrowing and touching uh, in the sort of poetic uh, outpourings uh, from from World War One, and I've got here a poem which I didn't know um, and it's called A Soldier's Cemetery and it's by a poet called John William Streets who was uh, killed and missing in action on the 1st of July 1916, aged 31. And he's a member of a, of a PALS battalion, uh, the battalion of the York and Lancaster Regiment. Um, and he... I'll just read it, actually. Behind that long and lonely trench line to which men come and go, where brave men die, there is yet unmarked and unknown shrine a broken plot, a soldier's cemetery. There lie the flower of youth, the men who scorned to live so died when languished liberty. Across their graves, flowerless and unadorned, still scream the shells of each artillery. When war shall cease, this lonely, unknown spot of many a pilgrimage will be the end and flowers will shine in this now barren plot, and fame upon it through the years descend. But many a heart upon each simple cross will hang the grief, the memory of its loss. There's a beautiful, beautiful, touching, touching poem. And we have something of the inspiration for this poem that he wrote in a letter to his poetry and publisher. And he wrote... They were inspired while I was in the trenches, where I have been so busy I have had little time to polish them. I have tried to picture some thoughts that pass through a man's brain when he dies. I may not see the end of the poems, but I hope to live to do so. We soldiers have our views of life to express, though the boom of death is in our ears. We try to convey something of what we feel is the great conflict to those who think of us, and sometimes, alas, mourn our loss. Now, unfortunately, he he died before he ever saw his poems um, published. So that sort of that that sort of cherished desire was never uh, really fulfilled. Um, so what's interesting also is that he is commemorated 
in a memorial park uh, to the PALS battalions of the 31st Division and the comrades, so many of them who died on the 1st of July 1916. So there we have it. We have um, PALS battalions and the way in which friends joined up uh, to fight in the First World War and the devastating impact that, ha that that had on local communities and local families. I had no idea about Powers Battalions, James. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. In fact, I've enjoyed doing this episode on the history of friendship. It's made me feel all quite cosy and warm and nice. Oh, excellent. I, I hope it has done to our listeners as well. Um, what's next, do you reckon? I'm, I'm not sure what, what are, what's on our list. We're doing a micro history of tattoos um, in a few days' time. Um, but uh, what's, what's next for our big one? Should we do trotters? No, no. <laughs> trotters? I think that's... Or wings. Uh, Should we do wings? Let's do wings. Wings would be quite good, wouldn't it? Yes. All right, let's do wings. Oh, wings. Yeah, fun. How exciting. Okay. History of wings coming your way Excellent. soon, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've enjoyed that. Um, do please follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. If you like maritime and naval history, as you all should, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We've got some truly awesome, awesome things coming your way. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. And you can have a look at everything that we've been doing over the last few years on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We also have a Patreon page. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast for all that we're doing during these difficult times so that we can get it produced and keep it going, that would be brilliant. Any sort Absolutely, of... Absolutely, yeah. Any amount... The more support we get, the more we can do. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that's it for now, guys. We'll be back uh, next week with the history of wings and later on this week with a micro-history on tattoos. Cheerio, bye-bye. Looking forward to that. Take care, everyone. Be well. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.